Hello and welcome to Conspiracy Games and Counter Games, Season 2 of The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and its anxieties. My name is Aris Komporosos Afanasiu and I'm Associate Professor of Sociology in University College London. And I'm Adam Kingsmith, a PhD candidate in the Department of Politics at York University. This season, our podcast is dedicated to going beyond the headlines and the easy answers and exploring the rise of conspiracies, conspiracy theories, and conspiratorial thinking in a gamified capitalist world. This episode features a conversation with Radbergs University professor and expert on conspiracies and capitalism, Jack Bradich. It was recorded on July 29th as part of the Conspiracies and Counter Games Summer Institute, organized by this project and rival, the Reimagining Value Action Lab. We now turn it over to the Institute's host, Max Haven, Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media and Social Justice at Lakehead University. We are here today. Uh, We're very fortunate to be joined by Jack Bradich. Jack is a professor of journalism and media studies at the Rutgers School of Communication and Information in New Jersey. Uh, He's focused for many years on the intersection of political culture and popular culture, including doing excellent and really insightful work on conspiracy panics, on surveillance, on journalism, on activism, and on the ways in which the truth is produced by social institutions. Um, He's the author of a number of different articles and books, including from 2008, Conspiracy Panics, Political Rationality and Popular Culture, and co-editor of Foucault, Cultural Studies and Governmentality, as well as a couple of articles that we're going to focus on today. Jack, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Max. Happy to be here and uh, look forward to the conversation. So just a reminder to those who are in the Zoom room that if you want to pose questions to Jack, uh, you can post them in the chat and I will be happy to pass them on or you can raise your hand using the hand raising function of uh, Zoom and I can help help you unmute yourself and join us uh, in a more intimate uh, appearance um, or vocal appearance perhaps. All right. Um, Jack, I wanted to start off by asking you to go back to your sort of 2008 uh, book, Conspiracy Panics, Political Rationality and Popular Culture, where you offered what I always found to be a number of really important insights. And one of them was that, you know, all of the concern over conspiracy theories can often itself be a kind of, what you characterize as a kind of conspiracy panic. And that those who are sometimes loudest in sounding the alarm about the threat of conspiracy panics have a kind of vested interest in making us believe that the real problems with our society, with truth, with journalism, with uh, with beliefs is a, you know, a handful of often very marginalized people um, believing something that's wrong or incorrect. Whereas in fact, the bigger problems we have to deal with have to do with the way the power is organized in our society and inequalities. Um, I wondered if you could kind of go go over that a little bit in light of what's happened over the last 13 or so years and, and where we find ourselves today in 2021 in an era when many more people than ever are concerned about conspiracy fantasies and also uh, in the thrall of them in some ways too. Yeah, thanks for that uh, great introduction and, and opening question, Max. I, I would say, like, you know, it's it's one of these 
projects that I had been working on for so long and I keep trying to get away from it in some ways and write about other things and some of the things you've noted. And then, um, and then it just, you know, the world uh, pulls me back in, right? History, history determines what I, what I get to focus on. But, but I will say, yeah, so even though it, it came out in 2008, actually I had been working on that uh, as a doctoral student in my doctoral program throughout the 90s, much of the 90s. So, so it's a very kind of, you know, situated book in that sense, situated research from that era. And then there's a chapter on, on 9-11, so there was a 21st century dimension to it too. But so many of the examples were there. And, and the thing that really kind of drew me to this is that I was seeing two things happen simultaneously in the 90s. One was the rise of, uh, in pop culture, the kind of uh, films, game, or not so many games, but there's some games perhaps, um, TV shows like The X-Files, films like JFK, or Conspiracy Theory, a whole slew of pop culture representations and narratives um, that are related to uh, conspiracies and conspiracy theories. And on the other hand, at the same time, um, news accounts that were growing increasingly concerned um, about the rise of they, what they called conspiracy theories. And so, and often that was tied to political action too. Um, often right-wing uh, movements, uh, what, they got, what they called anti-government movements, um, which is an interesting word we can talk about at some point, right? Uh, um, that somehow being anti-government is inherently right-wing. Um, and, and that, in, 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 it's tied to things like militias and the Oklahoma City bombing. So I was, so I was seeing these two simultaneous things happen, and occasionally those things would overlap. In the case of something like Oliver Stone's film JFK, which was both a Hollywood production and got a lot of backlash by historians, from historians and, 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 and reporters, who basically said, hey, you're, you're stepping on our turf. We're the ones who get to determine the truth of that narrative. Um, so how dare you, Hollywood director, try to do that? So, it, so as someone you know, working within cultural studies and media studies, this was sort of my, my interest in it. And during this time, you also started to see some scholarship come out that, that focused on why people believe. And so this was kind of the main question, both in terms of popular discourse and academic discourse. Um, and, and I didn't want to just ask that question because like you said, that might not be the most interesting uh, a political moment um, that was happening or the political development around this was not why do people believe strange things, but what is it about our narratives of how power works um, uh, and, and who gets to produce truth claims around how power works. Those things to me were, were, were more interesting. And so, so it became a, a way to see this you know, period uh, of mostly the 90s as uh, what I thought was I was seeing something around the management of dissent um, through this idea that something called conspiracy theories were a form of dangerous knowledge that could lead to dangerous action. So, um, uh, so at the time, you mentioned the Foucault and Cultural Studies and Governmentality book. So um, a few of us were working with, within Foucault's uh, governmentality literature. And so we were, a number of us were looking at how the 90s saw in the Anglo-American context a transformation of governance around um, uh, or I should say a kind of, you know, the kind of democratic, liberal, uh, centrist um, a moment where Blairite, I should say Blairite labor in the UK, in the US, the kind of Clinton era stuff, right? So, and in that moment, we were seeing something like um, how, you know, rationality was, in this case of conspiracy theories, rationality was being put forth as a kind of way to talk about how to manage more effectively um, and uh, to still allow people to have freedom, but freedom within reason, freedom within boundaries. And and so this to me was, uh, you know, I won't go too far into the, the way the book goes into the history of liberal skepticism and how conspiracy theories might be a form, an exaggerated form of that. I'll just leave that to the side. But politically speaking, what 
I was trying to get at was how a kind of centrism was emerging around this idea of political rationality. And it was even kind of, you know, uh, how should I say, like kind of connecting to or luring in uh, progressives and leftists who also got on board with, with this idea that conspiracy theories were inherently right wing, were inherently dangerous, um, and, and needed to be stopped, right? Not knowing that leftists were also then get, getting positioned as conspiracy theories. But um, okay, so that's the kind of, you know, uh, uh, not the summary of the book, but the way the book was written. And I chose fairly political conspiracies, meaning in the, in the sense of um, ones that had some something at stake, I, I would say, about what it means to think about power, especially in the US. And that was the JFK assassination, 9-11, um, uh, 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 the CIA crack uh, cocaine connection that came out in, in news stories. Um, and then uh, alongside of this, the kind of genocide and bioweaponry narratives um, against marginalized communities that were, one was a CIA crack version, but the other one was AIDS as genocidal biowarfare. So, so these were, to me, also had some built-in political stakes to them and wasn't going with certain just kind of outlandish ones about aliens or, or something like that, even though that has politics built into. Anyway, so, um, and again, being from media studies, I focused on the mediation of a lot of these. Okay, so this happens. Um, and so, you know, I think your second part of your question is like, well, what has changed in 13 years? Well, uh, a lot. For one thing, I, I wrote it, right, uh, it came out in 2008, and this is where I would say the cusp of sort of, you know, um, what was then called Web 2.0, or now, you know, social media platforms really started uh, uh, burgeoning, right, um, in, in, uh, in that moment. So the book is written, I, I have mentions of things like the 9-11 truth movement and its use of like websites, and I talk about the internet in the 90s, but you know, but the way that social media has also already become this kind of core uh, object that when, when people talk about misinformation or conspiracy theories, now it's linked to social media. So that's, that's new. But I also think there's something even like more, uh, something deeper about the political state of things that has changed. And that's, that's what I would say also 2008, um, around a certain kind of crisis in governance and a crisis in the state um, that what I was examining throughout the 90s and in the 2000s to, to, to some degree in the Bush era was a kind of consolidation and integration um, of governing powers uh, and, and through this idea of of political rationality, but that what we see, certainly with 9-11 and a kind of turn in the US to a security state or a war context, war on terror context, and then a crisis in governance after the financial uh, uh, meltdowns of 2008. I, I, I would say that we, you know, we have a, a different kind of context for this too. Um, and um, so, you know, and some of that crisis is also a crisis in trust in certain kinds of institutions that are authorized to tell the truth. That includes professional journalism uh, and, and politicians, um, scientists, all of these things were in play before and I think it's really come to the foreground though in the last um, uh, you know five to seven years um, and really kind of you know zoomed up with things like QAnon and the, and the pandemic but I'll sort of pause there because I've said a lot. Yeah, and it perfectly dovetails into what I wanted to ask you next, which is um, about this article that you, you published quite recently, Civil Society Must Be Defended, Misinformation, Moral Panics, and Wars of Restoration, where you, you essentially argue, and, and correct me if I get this wrong, that um, in a funny way, in this moment when all of these truth-telling institutions are in a legitimation crisis, they once again find a way to 
reinforce one another's uh, claims to legitimacy by creating this kind of moral panic about uh, misinformation and fake news. And this, this war that gets uh, sort of fomented where governments, media institutions, non-governmental organizations, even the university gets all kind of conscript themselves into uh, taking on this menace, uh, which then of course overshadows many of the other menaces that uh, face us in this moment. Um, and um, yeah, I wondered if you could sort of speak a little bit about how you see that forming, that kind of that strange alliance. I mean, in, in the article, you mentioned a bit about how even the social media companies like Facebook and Google that were once the, um, you know, kind of conceived of themselves as the enemies of the legacy media. In fact, they destroyed the market shares of much of the legacy media now find themselves on the same side as their one-time opponents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, so it was, and this is one of those, again, cases where, you know, for years I started just writing about other things like social movements and crafting and, um, you know, uh, and then, and then, yeah, around 2015, I started seeing just the word conspiracy theories come up again, but now in a context where the crisis was over this idea of post-truth, that we have entered a post-truth era. And so conspiracy theories were part of this string of terms. Um, fake news, misinformation um, that, you know, that then were symptoms and examples of this, this kind of um, crisis around, you know, what I would consider a crisis of trust and authority, um, but that uh, uh, was, was called post-truth, right? So, so what I was tracking in that article then is, um, is how, uh, uh, yeah, a kind of reshuffling of some of these actors uh, took place. And so I, I draw this whole idea of moral panics and conspiracy panics from um, uh, trained in cultural studies from the Birmingham School, Stuart Hall, at all the Policing the Crisis collection, which came out in the, in the late 70s about the construction of mugging as a, uh, in, the, in the UK um, as a kind of panic that actually uh, displayed um, uh, fears around race, um, and, but was coded through uh, criminal language, and but then all the ways that the very definitions of mugging and the language used was being sort of defined by the police and by politicians, and then the journalists were the ones who sort of like just kind of conveyed that to the public, that language that was set up by the state. But I, what I saw happening in, in, in you know, in the, in, since 2015, 2016, was a kind of reshuffling of this, where no longer were journalists sort of secondary um, they became primary definers of what post-truth, what misinformation, what, what uh, conspiracy theories were, um, and then worked hand-in-hand in, hand in some ways with, especially in the U.S., with state agencies, specifically intelligence agencies, also court hearings, uh, sorry, congressional hearings, to kind of berate um, social media platforms and kind of shame them into doing better with, when it came to how they defined misinformation and fake news. And so, I mean, we still see that today. I mean, it's like, continues this kind of um, constant uh, berating of the social, and not, I'm not trying to defend the social media platforms, but I'm just saying that that was the kind of moralizing form that got them on board to become part of this greater nexus is what I call it now, a nexus or an apparatus um, around misinformation. So, so yeah, so, so I was kind of tracing just some of these actors and, and then the funding that goes into uh, NGOs and 
you know, there's a massive one in my own university at Rutgers, uh, uh, at Rutgers University um, uh, that studies network contagions. And uh, uh, so, so I'm not part of it. I don't think they'd ever have me to be part of it. But they're in some zone in, inside my university that's a well-funded uh, uh, space. But this idea that now, yeah, academic institutions are being recruited into this as a kind of complex to, to make sense of dissent. And why I think this is important is, um, is, you know, so it's not that I'm a relativist. You don't have to be a relativist. I, I'm not saying you can't denounce narratives about the world that you think are too conspiratorial. Um, but it just, it, it, the question I want to ask is like, you know, almost like what, to what end does using a, a term like that, um, uh, uh, to what, what end does that serve? Like how both consistent is the concept of conspiracy theory, but more often like what, what is the force that wields it and weaponizes it? And um, I just think basically it's actually an inconsistent term um, uh, because it could be applied to, to many different things. Um, but so I, I just think it says more about the, pers the, the person or actor or force that utters it than it does about the target. Of it. That's the kind of claim, one of the claims of the book, I still think that holds. And so it, it functions as a folk devil in the kind of Stanley Cohen sense and the ways that moral panics work. Anyway, that, that uh, it means many people believe in it, but there's no agreement about what it means, but it can activate all kinds of things. And I think that's the things that we have to think about. What is it activating? Um, uh, those devils might be harmful, but the devil hunters themselves might be harmful too. Um, so that's the kind of, I think that's where we are with the kind of misinformation fake news part of things. And I mean, one of the things you mentioned in that article, um, and, and we've been looking at in this institute and the class around which the institute is built is that like, often the actors who claim to be saving us from fake news and conspiracy theories are themselves, you know, not exactly innocent. And, you know, we've talked about the way that the media and the sort of political establishment in both the UK and the US were totally complicit in essentially concocting fake news to justify the invasion of Iraq. We have a long history of the United States using uh, its security apparatus to attack activists, notably the COINTEL pro 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 program, which led to you know targeted assassinations and and horrific disruption of Black liberation, Puerto Rican, and other liberation movements. Uh, you know, we have the revelations from Edward Snowden and the revolution revelations just last week. Uh, that came out about just the depth and breadth of, of the spying that goes on in the surveillance systems that go on and, and the secrecy with which those are handled. So there's a way that the folk devil of the conspiracy theory then, you know, is, is almost like a sleight of hand or misdirection where we don't actually look at what institutions actually have significant provable forms of power in our society that are, you know, and these are the same forces that are often telling us that the biggest problem is, you know, fake news and conspiracy yeah. theories. Exactly, and, and, and you know, in, in addition to the, like, I mean, we, we, how do I say this? We have those facts, people have done that research. It's also the platforms, like how do you, where are the platforms where this can circulate? And it happens to be the very places now that also get sort of demonized as the places of fake news and misinformation. So, so that, you know, um, uh, I mean, uh, so yeah, so it becomes this, uh, this thing that, that, yeah, there's a way that it, there's a boomerang effect also um, of for people who actually also have a, an investment in the kind of critical history of either covert operations of the state or, or fairly overt um, uh, operations of the state, whether it's imperialistic Cold War moments or domestic kind of spying too. So yeah, so it's, it, it is, it's a very, very much a distraction. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I like in that article too that you you draw on on the warlike and uh, qualities of this war on fake news and and the way that in fact a number of the people who are at sort of the leading edge of it are people who trained in counterinsurgency psychological operations they really see it as a war. Um, and you frame this as, uh, as as us being caught in some ways between two ongoing wars of restoration, which I think is a really useful um, concept. On the one hand, we have a kind of war. So as these social institutions lose their legitimacy in the face of kind of the collapse of society of a market driven society, um, and you know things are getting worse for most people. Uh, the poor are getting, working people are getting poorer, the rich are getting richer, social society is breaking down in many ways thanks to its disemboweling by by uh, market forces. You have on the one hand this war of restoration with, with which I think we're all familiar and very concerned, which is the kind of far right reactionary restoration of, you know, heralded under the banner of make America great again, which presumes that, you know, over the last um, you know, I don't know how long they would say it is, but certainly over the last 40 years, sort of racialized groups, women, queer people, special interest groups have gotten too much power and have now sabotaged America and other countries as well um, through their kind of uh, nefarious demands. And, and so there's this right wing war of restoration to try and restore America and other places to what is imagined to be their sort of fabled origins around religion and family and race. But then you point out too that uh, there's a second war of restoration going on as well, and that's the restoration of this kind of centrism that you spoke about before, the kind of neoliberal, what would present itself as the mainstream, which is really, again, just about entrenching corporate power and uh, limiting the scope of what society is capable of doing and opening up society to the market. But now pointing the finger at the far right war of restoration justifies itself and says you need us we need to go back to i don't know i don't know when the clinton era the you know at some point when neoliberalism allegedly worked i I wondered if you could sort of like uh spell that out for us and then is there another choice i mean are we destined to simply choose between far right war of restoration or centrist war of restoration i know i know i know yeah so so um yeah you i mean you 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 summarize this so well um uh i'll take a step back and say like yeah that war has been like sort of not just on my mind but it's been infusing my my work not just on this topic but others for some time but within this topic so i did notice that like yeah part of that kind of crisis that i mentioned in the 21st century that when the the us really kind of uh, reshapes the state um to think about you know security to think about a war on terror then war becomes the overriding framework that of various kinds of wars. I think, I think so at one point, so I, I opened some talks, I'm like, we're at the convergence of all the wars right now, all the wars that are coming back, colonial wars, the US Civil War, the Cold War, right? Um, uh, the war on women, right? I mean, so, so I mean, the, it's almost like we're at a moment where all the wars have appeared and we have to kind of sort them out. Not just sort out the terrain, but actually like which war is happening at any given moment and, and how are we positioning ourselves within that. But within this topic, yeah. So, um, uh, you know, I began to see the language of information warfare being used uh, to, to, to say how we're going to combat conspiracy theories. How the, and that was like Cass Sunstein's work, who later became, you know, Obama's information czar, wrote this piece on like what he called cognitive infiltration, where you go into communities and you just 
disable their ability to think and, and to uh, uh, and to promote their ideas. And so, um, so you know, very much that kind of classic, uh, uh, you know, psi war, information warfare set of uh, uh, operations being uh, promoted as just like, yeah, this is this should be the way we combat. Um, misinformation and conspiracy theories. So, so you know, so even within that, it was very specific that way. But, but this is where also different kind of research streams of mine converge because I'd been working a little bit. I wrote a piece for Fifth Estate, the uh, the anarchist uh, uh, magazine newsletter, uh, news not newsletter, but uh, magazine, um, uh, and um, on the on the alt right and their kind of. Um, play with reality and the cosplay, what I thought was cosplay, a number of the, the kind of protests, um, and how I was developing there this idea of the War of Restoration because they were kind of dressing up, obviously, in soldier as soldiers, as centurions, right? Kind of this kind of like fantasy world, but in in cosplay form on, during their their protests, um, and and as you mentioned. You know, you articulate quite well. Kind of the the right wing, um, uh, especially white nationalist and, and patriarchal kind of war of restoration of this mythic past um, uh, that in which you know um, all all these kind of privileged positions of power were intact. That kind of fantasy of that. So so I'm writing that, and then meanwhile I'm also then seeing yeah exactly as you put it like like um, you know elements of the kind of <laughs> the the state also kind of talking about this. Um, and defining it as the enemy, and we obviously see that really lately when it comes to the January 6th storming and how, you know, some of the best images and the best language for it in some ways are coming from these, this very kind of centrist kind of nexus of uh, uh, state agents along with uh, journalists who are, who are sounding the alarm and doing some research into this stuff. Anyway, so, okay, but what I'll say about that is like, so, uh, so the war of restoration there to me is like, yeah, a, a kind of the restoring this idea of the public, of a kind of consensus-based liberalism that I would say, that, I mean, they're, they're, they're almost their favorite moment <laughs> probably is like the late 50s, early 60s, um, that more moment of a kind of consensus liberalism and an intellectual world that could, that could seemingly shape uh, uh, you know, public opinion, and they still had a, an enemy, which was at that point the Soviet Union, right? And so I think that comes into play with a lot of the kind of um, Russia Gate stuff that was happening, you know, also during, during the Trump era, was this kind of revival of that Cold War era consensus liberalism as the kind of uh, uh, construction of the, of the centrist position. And now, why I call it centrist too is because, and this is where I think to go back to your question, what other kinds of approaches is what I think is happening, right? What, whenever I hear the weird, sorry, whenever I hear the word extremism, I think we ought to be a little, uh, uh, you know, reluctant um, and just a little hesitant to sort of buy into it because that's a position in the center that says um, uh, both sides, um, right? There's a, a spectrum, the center that both sides have uh, problems and potential dangers. And so for me, um, thinking about different ways of being, you know, um, you know, anti-capitalist and uh, anti-state, um, uh, anarchist and feminist, it means thinking about, you know, the dangers of something called extremism being applied as it already is um, to people on the left, as well as uh, anarchists and other forms of uh, abolitionists. So, um, so, so what I draw inspiration from, uh, you know, around this is, at the very least analytically, is the is the idea that's been put forth by people uh, on the political research um, association. Is that right? The, like like uh, uh, Chip Burlett, uh, 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 Matthew Lyons, the idea of the three-way fight, 
right? And you see that in a book like um, Life Under Warfare, um, uh, edited by Christian Williams and others, right? This idea of like, like um, uh, you know, we need to have ways to combat both uh, the state as well as uh, uh, fascist social movements and you know, uh, and you know uh, reactionary so social movements and not let the state determine how that gets done because otherwise we will also get swept in with that I mean it's it's just kind of uh, I think it's kind of obvious that that's going to happen so so that's how I would say that that you know that the kind of the war framework is is, is really kind of all-consuming to me in some ways but it becomes like which war do you not to say like, you know, I don't want to fight any wars because the war will come to you in some ways, right? Um, so it's a question of how, how you want to position yourself. Um, uh, and you don't have to be a combatant necessarily, I'm just saying, but the, there's a war, a number of wars already happening. So how do you, how do, how do you position? Mm -hmm. I, want to, I want to link what you were just saying to a couple of our former guests on the, on the Institute uh, show here. Um, just on Monday, we were speaking with Elle Jones who, was, who said something very similar about you know her her she's a longtime abolitionist organizer here in in Canada and and writing in, about international issues as well and pointed out that you know as an abolitionist she can't condone the ways in which the the state apparatus is seeking to criminalize even forms of sort of right-wing uh, dissent, which she, you know, obviously strongly disagrees with and is personally targeted by and doesn't trust the prison or police system to actually address those. And we need to look for other solutions that don't just give more power and authority to governments to repress dissent, because if they're used on the right, then they'll be used often much more violently and effectively on, on the left. Often because, and she doesn't mention this, uh, you know, there are close ties between the far right and law enforcement and security agencies, certainly in the United States and Canada and elsewhere as well. And then I wanted to tie it back what you were talking about this kind of strange cosplay like quality to something that my colleagues and I were talking about in our first week together. Uh, we're interested in conspiracy fantasies as a kind of dangerous play that emerge that emerge in some ways from a very alienated society. Uh, where it feels like we're all trapped in a game we can't win. Um, and then it gives rise to all of these ways of trying to play within and against that system. But many of those ways of playing are extremely dangerous and destructive. And um, this maybe segues into the next question I want to ask you, to, which is to turn to another article that you wrote with Sarah Bennett Weiser. Um, and in that article, you really focus on the patriarchal and sexist and anti-feminist dimensions of a lot of these sort of conspiratorial or far-right movements uh, that are occurring. And you focus there on two specifically. Uh, on the one hand, the kind of industry, a kind of entrepreneurial industry that's grown up around so-called pickup artists who are essentially like very sexist men who promise that their followers that they'll teach them how to basically use a kind of psychological warfare in order to convince women to have sex with them uh which often bleeds very quickly into forms of sexual assault and abuse um and then it, you also in that article talk about the the so-called incel movement or involuntary celibate movement which is uh, a sort of an online subculture of uh typically uh, quite like nerdy or ostracized men who then blame the fact that they that they are not able to have sex with women um, on some sort of 
kind of feminist conspiracy to destroy civilization um, as we know it. And I wanted to ask you to kind of link this, to kind of explain that a bit to us and then kind of link it to your work on conspiracism. Um, because on the one hand, these groups do kind of organize in a conspiratorial way, like they kind of organize in the shadows um, and recruit people and build a kind of anti-feminist, misogynist conspiracy. And on the other hand, both seem to be kind of animated by a kind of conspiracist belief that there is some sort of horrible feminist conspiracy out there that's dedicated to destroying them, their lives, their sexuality, and Western civilization as we know it. And, you know, this came maybe to, in the recent QAnon documentary from HBO, they kind of draw this line between Gamergate, which drew on both kind of communities and the siege on the Capitol, uh, where you saw many of the same actors uh, involved and many of the same actors in the QAnon sort of movement. Anyway, I've just laid a whole bunch of things on, uh, on yeah. the table, but I wondered if you could speak about it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, it's one of those things where like, again, I, I, I feel like I have different research streams. So so this is one I had never thought about together. Um, uh, so um, so I will, I'll try with that, but I, I'm happy to talk about it on its own and maybe try to figure out how to connect it to conspiracy. But I think your, your two points are, 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 are right on, right? Which is, there's a way to think about, I mean, I, I avoided the language of conspiracism when it came to to things like the, even like the alt-right or, um, uh, but certainly, you know, this kind of PUA to incel pipeline. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it, there's certainly a level of kind of shadowy secret coordination that happens. I mean, uh, the, the actions that happen don't happen in public channels. I mean, they, they are happening in private channels and, uh, and, and, you know, in sort of like, you know, encrypted groups at times. And so, um, so, so yeah, so in that case, then, yeah, I mean, that's a kind of almost like the, the more kind of, how do I say, like the, the legalistic version of conspiracy, like people get charged with conspiracy, right? It's a, it's a, it's a legal charge, it's a criminal charge, um, in the sense of like plotting and organizing in secret to do something criminal. So, so, and I think, you know, that version of plotting happens a lot, right? I mean, just so, and not just in the kind of ways we were talking about uh, uh, misogynists or, or the manosphere, um, but the other part you, you, you mentioned too um, is, well, let me just pause, also say like, you know, the, the fact that you and I could say that, you know, misogynists might, might plot in secret and then uh, uh, and some gamer misogynists did and, and Gamergate was born. Like, what's, isn't it interesting that no, no one would call that a conspiracy theory that we just proposed, right? I mean, it's like, well, we're just, we're calling them like plotters and things, but uh, but so it's interesting when the term often gets used and where, when it wouldn't. That, that, I would just kind of side, put that in the sidebar. But um, but the second part you say about the it, it makes yeah perfect sense. It's like blaming. It's an age old thing about like, okay is is basically any enemy construction um, that the enemy exists out there and the enemy is coordinated. Um, is that Conspiracism is that you know so so I mean that to me is like you know a longer historical question too to say like yes if if you say SJW social justice warriors feminists cultural Marxists um, uh, what's the critical race theory right all those things that the right wing will kind of a chain of enemies that that, that they say um, that enemy uh, those enemies are. Uh, undermining and destroying Western civilization. Um, um, yeah, it's that's a, certainly a kind of 
you know, almost like clinical, you might say, paranoid fantasy. Uh, but it's a very much a, a political um, uh, conspiratorial um, narrative. Um, and so, yeah, so it, 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 there's a way that any, and this is what I was trying to say earlier, maybe like, you know, we, we, there's a, almost like a paucity of forms and ways that power can be discussed and narrativized um, and the platforms for those. And so, so you know, um, there's a way that this, you know, the, 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 what we find is like conspir conspiratorial versions of it. And then we call them conspiracies. Um, as well, so I think there's a so so that's what I would say. But in that, in that sense, that any modern governance in some ways is conspiratorial, both because it constructs an enemy, but then also has to plot in secret to combat that en an enemy, right? Just as you mentioned about Cointel Pro, and you know, uh, if you have security services or secret services, um, uh, security agencies of that sort, intelligence agencies, what you've basically said is like, yeah, we <laughs> we're conspiratorial. We have an enemy, and we need a plot. To stop that enemy. So, so yeah. I mean, to me, that's that's almost endemic to the modern state in that way. Then, and and these, but these, the the, the kind of masculine versions of this uh, around around uh, these subjects, the P ways and incels, um, certainly have that part of them. Um, although, you know, I think they're not special in that. If that makes sense. Um, One of the things I really like about this article is you and and your co-author. Um, Points out that like we can't just decontextualize these movements from the broader political economic world in which they exist, and that's a world where uh, neoliberal ideology and a sort of free market ideology has been wedded to hypermasculinity. And you know, I think we saw this especially in the figure of sort of someone like Donald Trump. Not to exceptionalize him, but you know, here's a ruthless entrepreneur, someone who presents himself at least as a ruthless, successful entrepreneur who's also basically a pig, um, you know, in, in almost every sense of the word, but certainly in terms of his his behavior towards women, um, really a kind of noxious misogynist character. And that, you know, um, within the mediascape and the political economy of neoliberalism over the last 40 years, um, sort of being a kind of successful market actor who imposes his will upon the world has been sold as a, as a way in which we're supposed to craft ourselves as men uh, and, and in terms of the kind of uh, gendered options for gendered performance. And you point out in that article, uh, as, in, as in the previous article we were discussing too, that like the whole thing feels like it's falling apart. People are trying to inhabit this form of com sort of competitive market-oriented masculinity, and yet their lives are often falling apart. They're not able to succeed. They're not being given what they were promised. And then this is in some way the, the context in which these, the pickup artist movement or the incel movement sort of gains steam that rather than saying maybe there's something wrong with the kind of masculinity we've been sold, uh, these movements come to blame it on feminists, social justice warriors, et cetera, et cetera. I wondered if you could speak a little bit more about it in the context of what you call like networked misogyny as well. Yeah, yeah, thanks. That's great. Um, so I will say that, that yeah, the start with the end that the, the term network misogyny is is actually Sarah's my uh, my co-author. She she'd co-written a, a shorter piece um, uh, with with I think it was Kate Miltner, but I'm not sure. Um, uh, I think called network misogyny. So so she really kind of imported that in. But but and I'll, I'll just say a little bit about how I think that was already framed and then how we kind of resituated it in the work, which was you know I mean it was a moment where. People also added network to a lot of things, um, just to kind of figure out the ways that 
media platforms and, and technologically enabled um, uh, action um, was changing the, the, the shape of various things we took for granted, right? So like um, people, other people have called it mediated misogyny, online misogyny, um, but that basically that, you know, what phenomena, how phenomena are changing based on sort of platformization and, and different kind of circulation technologies. Um, uh, for her network misogyny also was tied to what she called popular misogyny and that was basically a kind of backlash. It was kind of an update to the kind of backlash uh, logic. So what you had arise in, in, you know, in the 90s and 21st century especially is what she calls popular feminism and that's more or less like commodified feminism, very visible but also very neoliberal, very safe. Um, uh, but at the same time then that has a backlash in that of popular misogyny. So. Um, so what we try to do then is to think about network misogyny specifically in, in the context of what you just brought up with this idea of crisis and failure that, you know, so many of our uh, kind of the, the research in media studies and cultural studies, when they talked about neoliberalism and say reality TV or, or, or other kinds of pop culture, it would be about all of these kind of, yeah, exhortations and, and ideological mechanisms to keep people um, going, to be entrepreneurs, to, to just, you know, be self-starters, to do, do it yourself. And, um, but what we were also finding at some point is that they're not always successful. And we didn't see so much writing about what happens when, uh, how subjects react to those failures. And some people have been writing more recently about, about young girls and women and how they deal with uh, the pressures to, to perform perfection and the failures around that. But, uh, so, but we wanted to tie it to, um, uh, to masculinity and look at it, look at that, because there had been, at that point, not that much written about it in terms of, specifically, again, we're in media studies, right? So we want to look at this, uh, the pickup artist phenomenon, the manosphere um, that it sort of grew out of and really helped shape, but also this reality show um, that was sort of at the pinnacle of what we would think of as like neoliberal reality TV. Um, and then, but to then to see how, yeah, the failure in that um, doesn't get accounted for. And so what we, what we talk about in that piece is that neoliberalism fails to take care of its failures, basically, right? That's, that actually exacerbates its own crisis because it just tells people to fail better, just keep trying, right? Um, uh, more red pill, uh, <laughs> just keep working out. But at some point um, that, uh, yeah, it, it, people reach a kind of limit with that. And with misogyny, or with, sorry, with the pickup artist, what we saw is like that failure means people, these guys can just revert to fairly uh, uh, available resources, which is I deserve, I'm entitled to women and they have rejected me um, and now I will seek revenge um, and I'm victimized, right? So, um, so, so it's like when neoliberalism fails, there's still this more kind of older, more pervasive uh, patriarchal norms sitting there also uh, 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 waiting for them. So, so we talk about that in terms of the, um, about failures, but then also that it's predicated on the idea of, of success also. So meaning like the misogyny is not just when it fails, it's also the idea that if you become a successful entrepreneur, you're entitled um, to, to the women of your choice, right? And so partly, well, also I'll just do a quick thing because I know sometimes incels, the incel term could be a little muddied. Um, what we try to highlight is it's not, it's not men who feel just unloved or, um, or can't get a date. Um, they can't have access to the women they particularly want. Um, um, so they get rejected. And so it's different from, I think, the broader 
context and earlier ideas of, of involuntary celibacy um, um, because some of these folks say like, well, we can't have the, the women that we want. It's not, it's not just all women because their, their idea of what, of what kind of woman is desirable is already limited. So um, uh, I would, yeah, so anyway, so I, um, um, maybe, maybe I'll pause there. I might have some more things to say, but if you want to follow up. Sure, sure. Uh, I want to, I have another question to follow up on that, but I want to get a question from the audience here. Magda asks, if you've seen examples of individuals flipping sides or individuals or small groups going from sort of conspiracism of the far right to a kind of conspiracism of the radical left, sort of, we imagine that people transform their consciousnesses by kind of like moving through the familiar political spectrum. Mm. But is that the way it actually works? I mean, is that the path that people tend to travel or do you see I mean, other... You know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, uh, I mean, the, the thing that comes to mind is not even necessarily about, about conspiracy theories, but it is about that kind of whole post 60s turn that a number of, um, uh, you know, 60s leftists who became, you know, neocons and and um, uh, and, and right wingers. But I mean, again, it, it to me, it was almost like, I mean, yes, maybe the what, what links them is like, a certain kind of construction of the enemy. I mean, I'd have to think more, I have to give it more thought to think about specific examples. Um, but um, uh, but the way that, but so I haven't quite seen it go the other direction. Um, but the, the only other thing I would say is, I mean, there have been kind of, you know, uh, almost like deprogramming confessionals on YouTube from from people who were who were you know uh, uh, recruited into the alt right or into neo Nazis who who then talk about how they got recruited and, and just how their kind of their whole experiential uh, um, uh, moment with with encountering this this kind of whether it's conspiratorial or not or just fascist right I mean um, uh, stuff and then and then how they were able to come out of it so um, I'm not sure if that leads them then to you know another another kind of conspiratorial mindset I don't, but, I'm, but I'm not sure if that's what you were asking um, but I haven't seen exactly I think what you're asking for but um, asking about but maybe it's out there um one of the ways that these far right uh formations in the last 10 15 years have been so successful is that they've they've been very good at entering into gamer culture uh and and also in some ways gamifying their own recruitment in curious curious ways and you know i think this was famously sort of emblematized in some of the work that's been done on gamergate where there was this kind of outsized, uh, you know, and I, I use the word advisedly, like a kind of hysterical, uh, mostly male reaction to criticisms of video games um, by video game fans that then escalated quickly into a kind of an online game mm. of vicious harassment against feminist game critics and anyone who kind of got in the way of this, this kind of mob. Um, and I wonder if you had thoughts on that and the particular, I mean, maybe to go back also to the, the work that you were doing on the kind of cosplay war, the war of cosplay, um, about how games and play play into these kind of new formations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm just really kind of delving into a little bit of that myself, um, especially with QAnon. Um, but but so, I'll, but I'll start by saying, I think, you know, there's been a, there's a, depending on how broadly we talk about games, um, I mean, there's been a kind of game dimension, at least the kind of whodunit or mystery version of the game when it came to even like fairly classic 
conspiracy research, like who shot JFK, right? It was collaborative, um, uh, and um, you know, or who brought crack to the U.S.? Uh, do aliens exist? Right? There's a there's a way that people gather together, and there was you know kind of a competition among some of them. Like I found this, you know, the kind of like. Uh, I mean, but it, it didn't really have a kind of design element necessarily built into it. I mean, this was a, a kind of decentralized network of researchers around the U.S. and around the world only came to the JFK thing, right, for instance, or, or, or later with 9-11 Truth. So I think there's been some version, if we consider like the, the whodunit, um, uh, uh, a kind of game, certainly a, a level of investment and pleasure in it. Um, and, you know, and, and I, this is where I kind of part ways with some of the other conspiracy theory scholars from my era, from back in the day, whose work I really admire a lot. Um, otherwise, um, people like Mark Fenster and Jody Dean, who really wanted to look at the, the uh, using Slavoj Zizek's work on enjoyment, the kind of pleasure uh, in, the, uh, in, in conspiracy theories. Um, um, but they did it in such a way, I mean, the, the, the psychoanalytic model is the, the pleasure is always a kind of the pleasure and failure, right? You never can find the truth. So it just keeps you going. Um, and so I found that to be, I mean, it's, it's, it's sociologically interesting and psychologically interesting, but, but I'm not sure what to do with that kind of politically. Anyway, so I would say that people have talked about kind of pleasurable investments and affective investments in conspiracy theorizing in different ways. Um, but, what you, but I think what, what you're getting at with this other work, like the cosplay, Wars of Restoration, the, the alt-right, I mean, I mean, it has been, I mean, it's defining affects in addition to kind of hatred and, and fear I mean, have been irony and fun um, and, and play in that sense. Um, uh, I do think, uh, we can talk about more about game mechanics and design too, but I'll, I'll, first I'll start with the kind of affective side of this and play and the kind of camaraderie that, that uh, emerges, as you mentioned, even with things like Gamergate or that, that comes out of a certain sense of gaming, of kind of team-based, squad-based um, play. Uh, and the ways that it's interesting sometimes like even gamer gators and you know coordinated misogynists will say like well we're not really we don't it's not about our targets we don't really hate women we're really just having a good time ourselves really bonding together i mean i would question that about the forms of bonding and how one bonds over you know an, an othered person usually a woman in this case uh, uh, but um but but yeah but so but there is this sense of like uh fun built into it in addition to a kind of mystery and that comes more with with QAnon this kind of like the the, the ways that um that you know whether it's the the playful reenactments of, of these sort of alt-right street protests that are dressing up in the ruins of these are all dead empires that they fetishize right and so um the romans the you know uh the nazis the spartans it's just like these ruined empires so there's a version of a kind of play in that but then also i think more probably salient for this institute and for the the kind of work that people are doing is this idea of the kind of creation of a set of almost alternate realities with their own kinds of rules uh, the rules of truth telling the rules of performativity uh, the ways that people find each other the what the goals are how they set up their values uh, in it um, it's participatory so I mean um, I, I can go on about QAnon we will but uh, but you know even like you know, uh, game designers have written pieces about how they think QAnon operates like a game, and this is how they would have done it if they were designing something like this. So I think uh, that one in particular, I think, is, is really fruitful 
because then we, we need to ask ourselves like, okay, well, are there designers? This is gonna be my conspiratorial moment. Like, who are the designers for QAnon, actually? Um, uh, or are we gonna believe that it's, it was completely bottom-up, decentralized, and now it's just a series of kind of connected grifters and, um, uh, you know, and, and, and preachers and influencers. But, um, but the, sometimes when you dig into it, you're like, okay, well, actually, in, in, in that uh, HBO documentary, too, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna stop soon, but the HBO documentary, you hear that, like, oh, there were these, like, military intelligence guys who are also really interested in this. Um, and, uh, and whether or not they were involved is hard to say, because that would be, take some more investigative reporting. But, um, uh, but this idea that, you know, if it's a game, if it's an alternate reality, um, or a live action role play, then, then who, who's setting up the rules? Who's designing this game? I think is really important to, to ask. Yeah, who is the dungeon master and what <laughs> yeah. dungeon are we in? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. Is, there, is there a winning to it also? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I wanted to uh, ask you too, like you're, you're also someone who studies left-wing movements and movements for liberation, for autonomy, for, uh, you know, um, dignity and human rights. It, do you see any of the same, I wouldn't say the same tendencies, but anything that kind of rhymes about the way that that more left-wing uh, movements that probably you and I are sympathetic to uh, are organizing today as well? Or is it that this kind of, the kind of logics that we're talking about of the right don't translate at all to the, to, to projects of liberation? I, that's, that's, that's a really uh, profound question. And, you know, and it, and it makes me think I, I can I can point to some things, but I think you know, that's where the you know the movements and the struggles also begin to form things, and we have to almost pay attention, we have to listen and see. But I think that it's possible because I think the kind of fun, the kind of affects, the right wing affects, are and I'm writing I'm finishing a book right now on microfascism, mm -hmm. and it, really, it deals with some of this um, about the kind of death orientation or the necro political version of this fun um that's a kind of gleeful nihilism right that it's the way that you you know um uh, um and and on the right right and uh, uh, and we might need a better some better language around the kind of different kinds of affects mm -hmm. different combinations that we're seeing um the narcissistic psychopathic ones right that will burn everything to the ground and take everybody with them because they either are indifferent to the world or because they've lost a modicum of power, they want to see it all burn. Um, uh, but then to think about what other kinds of abolitionist joys, because I mean, theirs is a version of abolition. Um, that that necropolitical version of abolition wants to destroy things, but not in the way that I would say, you know, folks on the left are thinking about abolition in the ways that there's a way for a dismantling that can happen with um, with a kind of conviviality but also a set of support networks, right? It's not just fun. It's also actually the serious work of the everyday um, maintenance uh, and the social reproduction of those struggles, which I know, Max, you've had, you know, I, I cite your interview with Sylvia Federici on this too, right? It's so important, um, right? This idea that like, it's a whole range of affects. So I will say that, you know, one of the, um, 
the, obviously in, in the states and, and elsewhere, the kind of ways that we solve forms of conviviality um, and, and joy in the, uh, on the streets during uh, June, May, June 2020, and, and the forms of support that people were finding in various cop-free zones, but also uh, uh, during, during different kinds of insurgent moments, very important around George Floyd and, and, and Black Lives Matter. Um, but also I'll point to, you know, one of the things I was just starting to talk about in some presentations in February, in March of 2020 was the kind of resurgence of a kind of global feminist uh, uh, protest, really, and the kind of the, the rapist in your path uh, uh, protests, mostly emerging from uh, Latin America, which were based on gesture and song and dance, but also serious, uh, 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 you know, articulations of where power was, and um, uh, but also a kind of collective support or the new una uh, menos uh, uh, movements that are still happening. Um, uh, but but to, to find in those, and, and this is where I would turn to, you know, you can read theoretically the work of Veronica Gago on this, um, but but I would say that there were, and I'm hoping that there's, that's happening too, because that was a moment, and that got cut short very quickly by the pandemic, when um, when then, two months later, street protests were actually these anti-lockdown protests in the U.S., right? And then um, uh, and, and then we had the, the uh, George Floyd Black Lives Matter. So there, there are moments we can, I think, begin to look at the kind of power, the collective powers and collective joys, but it, it's, uh, uh, but we have to pay attention, I think, with a more refined set of affective or language about affects.